Podcastle, episode 69, for September 8th, 2009. The Rung by Stephen Woodworth. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Ann Leckie. Name something by Sergei Prokofiev that isn't Peter and the Wolf. Sure, he wrote lots of other music, and some of it is pretty famous, but Peter and the Wolf is the work that everyone knows because we nearly all heard it when we were children. Peter and the Wolf isn't long enough to fill a CD, or an LP if you're as ancient as I am, so chances are, if you've ever owned a recording of it, that recording also included either Benjamin Britten's The Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, Know anything else by Britain? You might, if you sang in a college chorus, or if you're into opera, but it's entirely possible the guide is all the Britain you know. Or, if the extra space wasn't taken up by Britain, it was Camille Sasson's Carnival of Animals. The French composer Camille Sasson was a child prodigy, kind of like Mozart. He studied piano from a very young age, wrote his first musical composition at the age of four, and played his first public concert at the age of five. He wrote his first symphony when he was just 16. His second was published when he was 18, and it drew praise from people like Liszt and Berlioz. He began his career as a champion of contemporary French music, but he lived during a period when music was changing fairly radically, so by the end of his life, he was considered staid and old-fashioned. If you know nothing else by Sasson, you know the tune from his third symphony. You know... Yes, of course you know that tune. With some words added, it was a hit in the UK in the 70s, but it also turned up in the movie Babe. And if you're saying to yourself, but I haven't seen Babe, you need to remedy that as soon as possible. The other Sassol you almost certainly know is the Swan from the Carnival of Animals. It's sometimes called the Dying Swan, largely because the ballerina Anna Pavlova toured the world doing a dance of the same name to Sassol's music. She was inspired by Tennyson's poem, The Dying Swan, and wanted to dance it, and the choreographer she was talking to suggested the swan. Sassol's swan is gliding elegantly, not tremulously and melodramatically sinking down to death, but the association stuck. The Carnival of Animals is one of Sasson's best-known works, which is ironic. He refused to allow performances of the Carnival of Animals while he was alive because he thought it was frivolous and would undermine his reputation as a serious composer. The only exception was the swan. Today's story is The Olverung by Stephen Woodworth. Stephen is a first-place winner in the Writers of the Future contest and has published speculative fiction for more than a decade. His work has appeared in such venues as the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, Weird Tales, Aboriginal Science Fiction, Gothic.net, and Strange Horizons. He's a native Californian and is currently writing more novels in the Violet Universe. The Olverung originally appeared in Realms of Fantasy and was reprinted in Year's Best Fantasy 9, edited by David Hartwell and Katherine Kramer. It's read by Paul S. Jenkins. He's a writer living in Portsmouth, UK, He's the host of the Rev Up Review, a science fiction review podcast established in March 2005, featuring reviews of speculative fiction in many of its varied forms, along with rants, chit-chat, the occasional interview, plus a pod-safe music track or two. He also reads an installment of serialized short fiction at the end of each show. He's the author of The Plytone Revisionist, a science fiction podcast novel. The Alvarung by Stephen Woodworth. 
four hundred sovereigns. Shivering as he stood among the cemetery's moss-encrusted headstones, Lord Atherton held up his guttering candle and squinted at me, trying to discern some chink of humanity amidst the blackness of my hat and mask and cloak. A hundred now, and three when I get the Olverung. I merely looked down at him with my mask of black silk, which shrouded my visage like a headsman's hood. I found such silence more conducive to my negotiations than a lot of senseless dickering. Well, pearls of perspiration began to roll from underneath the old man's wig as he grew unnerved with the stillness of my figure and the melancholy of the moonlit churchyard that I had selected for our rendezvous. By design, I limited his lordship's light to the solitary candle which he clutched in his hand like a rosary. Five hundred, then, or six. For God's sake, name your price. How do you know the king even possesses this mythical bird? I leaned toward him till my veiled face loomed inches from his own. How do I know you're not merely enticing me to put my neck in His Majesty's noose? Because I've seen it. His face took on a desperate, defeated look. Because I've heard it, the king he displays it for the diversion of the nobles, holds parties, and forces it to perform like some halfpenny minstrel, squandering its beauty. He shut his eyes, sealed in a rapture of sorrow. I knew then that he spoke the truth. I accept your commission. I announced for a thousand sovereigns. Leave half the gold in the hollow tree outside the gate. I shall collect the rest in person when I deliver your prize. I extinguished the candle's flame with my gloved fingers. The old man cried out at the sudden darkness as I ran through the cemetery in the moonlight. I climbed over the churchyard's low stone wall and on to Obsidian, my steed, and rode off at a trot. Glancing over my shoulder, I could see the bobbing lantern of Atherton's coachman, who sought his master among the graves. The olverung is an ugly bird. Its bulbous head juts from the spout of a scrawny neck, and warts dot the bridge of its fat beak. When it struts upon the ground, its pot-bellied body waddles with the ludicrous gait of a town drunkard. Its plumage has the black iridescence of a fly's abdomen, and is too coarse even for pillow stuffing. Yet the fowl possesses one singular attribute that princes and popes have coveted for centuries. And it was for this sole virtue that Lord Atherton entreated me to steal the creature from the king. Atherton knew me strictly by reputation, of course, when he sought my services. Intrigued with the novelty of the theft, I arranged the meeting with his lordship through my informants. The following morning, I collected my bounty from the hollow oak. Once I assured myself that none of His Majesty's musketeers were watching. In truth, the money meant little to me. I would have accepted Atherton's challenge for a farthing. Onwee has always been my personal curse, you see, constantly goading me into performing ever greater acts of mischief to satisfy my insatiable longing for sensation. I conceived a plan for the crime, and two days later I journeyed to London to seek a man I had not seen and had not wished to see. Since I was a lad of nine, I found one of his apprentices in the market at Newgate, a small, dirty-faced boy in shabby clothes. He stood amidst a small circle of housemaids with their shopping baskets and produced a seemingly endless string of coloured handkerchiefs from his tiny, closed fist. The women giggled at the trick and tossed a few coppers in the upturned cap that lay at the boy's feet. He bowed and thanked them, and I remembered how I had once performed the same trick, the same bow, hour after hour. 
day after day. "'You're quite the conjurer,' I told the boy as I approached him. He bowed again. "'Thank you, sir.' Squatting until we were eye-level, I produced a silver half-crown and held it up before his widening eyes. "'I might have need of a talented magician such as yourself. "'I'll take that.' A gnarled hand with long, yellowing nails plucked the coin from my fingers. I glanced up to see my former mentor, wizened by the years and now completely bald. "'I'm the boy's father,' the man claimed. "'Then I must be his mother,' I retorted, drawing myself up to my full height. "'I guess that you would be somewhere nearby, Adolphus.' His eyes narrowed. "'Pardon me, sir, have we met before?' I smiled coldly. "'Don't tell me you've forgotten your favourite protégé.' He scrutinised my features, and his lips stretched into a wicked grin. "'Aha! My wayward fowl finally comes home to roost!' A gust of gin-sodden breath blew from his mouth as he cackled. Hardly. I waved the offensive air away from my nose. I do, however, have a business proposition to discuss with you. And what would you be needing me for? Seems like you've done quite well for yourself. He eyed the richness of my coat. I don't need you. I need the seven white ladies. Always one for the ladies. He gave another rasping laugh. "'Come on, then, and have your purse ready.' "'As I turned to follow him, "'I placed one of Atherton's gold sovereigns in my open hand "'and held it behind my back, out of Adolphus's view. "'Small fingers scraped my palm, and the coin disappeared. "'I heard the young apprentice scamper away into the crowd "'and hoped he had the good sense not to come back. "'Adolphus led me through a labyrinth of narrow, sewage-scented streets "'to the dismal residence of Brick, where he dwelled.' "'his façade still blackened with soot from the great fire. "'I see that you haven't lost your taste for luxury,' "'I commented as we entered his Spartan room. "'A rat trundled across the floorboards in front of us. "'Better than the common room at the lodging-house.' "'He kicked at the rat, which squealed and scurried under the chamber's sole bed. "'The room might have been the twin of the one I'd once shared with him. "'In one corner lay a rolled-up mat and a wooden bowl.' most likely the same items that served me when I was his apprentice. On one side of the bed sat a half-filled chamber pot. On the other side, a rack with a row of pegs had been mounted to the wall. A threadbare surcoat and a pair of knee-breeches hung from the first two pegs, while a willow switch dangled from the third. I grimaced, for the old scars on my shoulders still stung with the memory of that switch. "'That's not it!' the willow sticks dropped my back. A blind man would have seen you palm that coin. Now do it again. Another lash. Again. I glared at Adolphus. You still find that orphans make the best magicians? They make the best money. He moved among the room's only other furnishings. An assortment of dust-shrouded magical apparatus, including a cabinet shaped like a coffin, and impressive reproductions of a headsman's block and axe. As I recall, you wanted my seven white ladies... "'Sadly, all the damsels are deceased. "'Allow me to introduce the seven grey gentlemen.' "'He shoved an oblong wicker chest toward me, "'from which emanated the sound of cooing and fluttering. "'Doves? "'Pigeons. "'Bloody stupid birds. "'But they'll do as I've taught them. "'Now, then,' he patted the chest and smiled. "'What are they worth to you?' "'After haggling at length, "'we finally settled the matter for twenty pounds.' for which I purchased several of his other tricks as well. 
though I would have paid five times what I offered, I feigned reluctance at agreeing to such a price. If Adolphus got wind of how valuable his birds were to me, he would have demanded a share of the spoils from my scheme. Even as he counted out the gold I gave him, he regarded me with suspicion. I'm surprised you still have an interest in the art. Tell me, how do you intend to use my gentleman? For my own amusement, I answered truthfully, lifting the lid of the wicker chest to peer inside. One of the gentlemen flapped from the cooing congregation of his kinsmen and perched on my outstretched hand, inspecting me with eyes of ebony. Given time, I could have trained my own birds and saved myself the expense and irritation of dealing with Adolphus. Atherton informed me, however, that the king intended to show the Olverung at a party within a matter of days, which left me little opportunity to educate a flock of fowls in the art of illusion. The seven grey gentlemen would have to do. Even with the aid of these feathery accomplices, I barely had time to prepare myself for the festivities at the palace. I had not practised magic in many years and needed to rehearse the tricks for my performance. Fortunately, deception and knavery are skills common to both magicians and thieves. Small wonder, then, that Adolphus's training had served me so well in my later career. Early on the morning of His Majesty's party, I loaded a horse-cart with my props and illusions and hitched a swift gelding from my stables to the wagon, then set out on the road to London. When I reached the outskirts of the capital, I paused briefly to don my costume for the evening's performance. A peaked cap, white silk stockings and dark breeches, and a surcoat of motley colours. The coat could be turned wrong side out to display a more sombre hue, should I wish to change my demeanour later in the evening. I then powdered my face with flour, blackened my eyebrows with charcoal, and rouged my lips and cheeks. The sun hung low in the west as I finally arrived at Whitehall Palace, where I joined a line of wagons bearing food and wine for the evening's festivities. One of the king's lifeguards grinned at me as he approached my cart. "'Well, aren't you the pretty fool?' He called over to a fellow member of his regiment. "'Here, Tom, we've got Master Arlequin himself as guest tonight.' "'Don't remember anyone saying anything about a clown,' his jowly comrade replied. "'Nor do I.' "'What would be your business with His Majesty, Master Arlequin? "'The name's Monsieur Renard, magician extraordinaire.' "'I quickly made one, then two, then three balls appear between the fingers of my right hand. "'I come to entertain the King, courtesy of Lady Castlemaine. "'From one of my informants, I'd heard that His Majesty's favourite mistress "'had gone to take the waters in Bath and would not be in attendance that evening. "'After a brief consultation between themselves,' The two guards bid me wait while they sent a lackey to fetch the steward of the king's household. The messenger returned with a small, stooped man who berated both the lackey and the guards for wasting his time with such trivialities. "'You there!' the steward tilted his nose up to glare at me through his spectacles. "'We didn't ask for any clowns. Be on your way.' "'As you wish, sir,' I doffed my cap. "'I've been paid either way, but her ladyship will be terribly disappointed that you turned away her gift to His Majesty.' I moved as if to manoeuvre the cart back toward the lane, but the steward called for me to stop. "'Oh, very well,' he muttered. "'I suppose you can do your tricks after Moll Davis sings.' "'How very gracious of you, sir!' I smiled, and tipped my cap to him again as I steered the cart into the tilt-yard across from the palace. The evening's festivities were due to take place in the banqueting-house, a grand hall two stories high lined with two tiers of Greek demi-columns, 
A long-faced footman named Bell helped me tote my magical apparatus into the enormous chamber, where servants were already lighting the candles on the chandeliers, and arranging the tables and chairs for the feast. On the ceiling, high above us, sumptuous paintings by Rubens depicted the glory of the Stuart monarchs, with heaven itself welcoming King James into its airy dominion. This in the same room where Charles I spent his final hours before stepping onto Cromwell's scaffold. Rich tapestries hung the length of the rectangular hall, blocking the view from the downstairs windows. "'I understand the King has some special entertainment planned for this evening,' I remarked to Bell as we carried a folding wooden screen into the hall. "'Could be,' the footman said, his face expressionless. "'I've heard it's something of a prodigy.' "'Could be. "'Would it be possible for a curious soul to have a closer look at it?' "'Bell's eyes shifted to meet mine. "'Could be. "'Further questioning revealed that it could be possible for twelve guineas. "'A group of musicians sat at one end of the hall, readying their instruments, "'and I arranged my apparatus, including a perch for my birds, beside them.' Bell and I unfolded the wooden screen to serve as a curtain for my entrance and exit. Disguised by the arcane runes painted on the screen's wooden panels, a pair of eye-holes gave me a reasonable view of the chamber at large. I set Adolphus's wicker chest behind the screen and sat on it, eating some bread and cheese I'd brought with me and drinking a small mug of ale that Bell brought me from the kitchen. My meal finished... I opened the chest and gently placed each of the grey gentlemen in one of the seven drawstring bags concealed in my costume. Before long, a pair of servants opened the doors at the upper end of the chamber and stood aside to allow a procession of nobles to file in by twos and threes, the men dressed in embroidered vests and tunics, the women in satin gowns. Lord Atherton, I noticed, entered alone, silent and pensive. I watched the parade of aristocrats with indifference until I saw the Lady Barbara Castlemaine, sometime lover of the King and the woman I'd falsely claimed as my patroness, step into the room. Even without its layer of flour, my face would have blanched at that instant. She wouldn't dare to speak to the King at such a public function, not with the Queen in attendance, I told myself. Nevertheless, my eyes instinctively scanned the room for avenues of escape. I also vowed that I would soon have words with Toby Tulliver, the reprobate who'd earned five crowns by telling me her ladyship had gone to Bath. The assembled company took their places at table, yet remained standing as a herald announced the arrival of the king and queen. The monarchs ascended to an elevated table at the head of the room, Charles smiling and at ease, Catherine sombre and stiff. The tall heels of the king's shoes elevated him in stature above his wife, and his wig seemed "'longer, darker, and curlier than that of any other man in the room, "'its coal colour matching his neatly trimmed black moustache. "'The monarchs seated themselves in adjacent thrones "'as the guests cheered their appearance. "'His Majesty acknowledged their applause and bade them sit down, "'and servants in satin livery filed in "'bearing lavish foods on plate of gold. "'For some time the company dined on fricassee of rabbits, "'boiled mutton, haunch of venison, and other such extravagances.' but His Majesty insisted that all dining cease as Mary Davis stepped up to perform. Commonly called Moll Davis for her reputation as a libertine, the actress had caught the King's eye with her rendition of My Lodging is on the Cold Ground in The Rivals, a ballad she now sang with the accompaniment of the musician seated beside me. The Queen, a plain, swarthy Portuguese, frowned at the attention His Majesty paid to the pale, buxom singer. 
The nobles in the audience, of course, all knew of Mole Davis's liaisons with the king, and they responded to her pleasant ditties with polite applause. As soon as she had finished her recital, the servants brought in a selection of pies, cakes, and puddings, and refilled the company's goblets with spiced wines and beers. It was then, in the midst of this clamour of clattering plates and cups, that the irascible steward introduced me to the audience. My lords and ladies, he brusquely announced, as a token of friendship, one of His Majesty's many admirers has sent us a splendid magician for our amusement this evening. I give you Monsieur Renard. I exhaled my pent-up breath and silently thanked the good steward for his discretion in withholding Lady Castlemaine's name. Before he could leave the floor, I bounded out from behind the screen and shook his hand with comic vigour. This gesture won the first chuckle from my audience of nobility. I peered at the steward as if perplexed. "'Did you have squab for dinner tonight, sir?' The little man grew flustered. "'What a... no, I did not have squab. "'Then what, pray tell, is this?' I reached under the flap of his surcoat and produced the first of the seven grey gentlemen. With a gentle nudge from my hand, the pigeon flew up and alighted on the steward's head. The audience roared with laughter as he frantically shoot the bird off his scalp and hurried off the floor. "'Evidently Squab does not agree with our friend. "'A pity, because I have enough here for a feast.' "'Striding out into the crowd of seated nobles, "'I made the other pigeons appear in rapid succession, "'producing them from under handkerchiefs, "'from behind earls' heads and from under women's skirts. "'I released each bird in turn, "'and it flew across the chamber "'to roost with its companions on the perch I had prepared for them. "'At last all the birds sat cooing in a row.' "'My lords and ladies, may I present my mentors in magic, the seven grey gentlemen,' I said with a grand sweep of my arm, and bowed as the audience applauded. I proceeded to regale them with parlour and patter. I even placed Adolphus's rune-covered box on the head of the Duke of Albemarle, and then made it appear that I had pierced his skull with crossed swords. "'Fear not, good people,' I assured his fellow peers. "'The noble Duke has no brains to damage.' The assembly roared again and applauded. "'What a perfect rogue the fellow is,' the king murmured, "'little suspecting he spoke the truth. "'While the chamber of nobles cheered, "'I gave a final deep bow and carried the perch "'bearing the seven grey gentlemen behind the screen with me "'as I made my exit. "'I put six of the pigeons back in the wicker chest "'and placed one in a drawstring bag beneath my surcoat. "'Peering through the screen's hidden eye-holes, "'I could see the sullen steward sheepishly step forward. "'My lords and ladies,' he implored, we beseech your patience as we prepare for the evening's final performance. The audience quieted as servants carried in an upholstered bench and a marble-topped table and arranged them at the near end of the room. On the table they set a red velvet pillow from which dangled several white ribbons. A moment later a white-gloved footman entered with a brass stand surmounted by a domed cage. As the footman set the stand beside the table, a hidden fluttering stirred the embroidered linen draped over the cage. The steward cleared his throat. <coughs> Signor Salvary, if you would be so kind. A corpulent man with lowering brows rose from the ensemble of musicians beside me and stepped forward, a black valise in his hands. He bowed to the king, the queen, and the court, acknowledging their applause. The buttons of his waistcoat strained at their bonds as he seated himself on the bench before the table with the velvet cushion. He nodded to the waiting footman, then opened his valise. Inside the case, two rows of silver thimbles nestled in contoured crevices of velvet. 
A long, thin spine of metal extended from the head of each thimble, and the point of each spine ended in some form of hook, needle, or razor. Signor Salvary held up his hands, and servants placed the implements on the tips of his fingers and thumbs. Meanwhile, the footman folded back the linen shroud on the cage and reached inside to grasp the unseen captive. The servant's hands girdling its squat body, the bird swivelled its ungainly head in panic as it emerged, its iridescent black wings flapping impotently. The Olverung was every bit as ill-formed as its legend had promised. With some difficulty, the footman turned the bird on its back and held it fast to the pillow, its wings splayed, while his fellow-servants bound the animal with the white ribbons. Signor Salvary set to work on its belly with his instruments, and the first notes of the Olverung's song burst forth. A wavering, ethereal vibration rose from the creature's throat, such as the sound made when one rubs the rim of a fine crystal goblet with wet fingers. It swelled in volume until the very windows of the banqueting-house hummed in sympathy. Salvary plucked at the animal's flesh as though playing a harp, artfully increasing the creature's pain to elicit a crescendo of poignancy from its cries. Such is the bird's nature. A dull, chittering fowl when content, it only unleashes the mystical beauty of its voice in the throes of agony. The melody trembled between major and minor keys, angelic and anguished all at once. First wringing one's head with dizzying ecstasy, then clamping it in the vice of unbearable grief. It promised delight beyond measure, yet, an instant later, dashed all hope of happiness. It was the sound of love. Men and women alike sobbed openly. The queen let out a strangled cry and buried her face in her hands. The king dabbed daintily at his eyes with a handkerchief. Some wept for joy, some wept for sorrow, but all wept for love. Even I was not immune. I, who have known neither a mother's tenderness nor a friend's loyalty in my wretched existence. I, who have never wooed a woman for more than a night's dalliance. A stranger to love, I recognised its voice as surely as if seeing my own twin for the first time. Terrible and glorious, beautiful and cruel, eternal yet fleeting. My ice-bound heart shivered to the point of shattering, and tears turned the flower on my cheeks into trails of paste. Signor Salvary concluded his concerto, and the Olverung's final notes faded in its throat. A reverent hush hung over the room for several moments, punctuated only by small cries. Scattered clapping soon swelled into a rousing ovation as Salvary stood and bowed to the court, while the white-gloved footman untied the Olverung and placed the unconscious bird back in its cage. The footman carried the cage out of the hall as his fellow-servants entered with more wine for the nobles, who jabbered amongst themselves. Seated behind the screen, I barely had time to blot the moisture from my cheeks before I felt a tap on my shoulder. I turned to find Bell regarding me with the same emotionless expression he'd worn that afternoon. He nodded toward a door on our right, and I followed him out of the banqueting-house into a passageway that connected the hall to the royal apartments. Carrying a pair of mounted candles to light our way, he led me down the corridor and up a flight of stairs. When we reached the second-floor landing, he motioned for me to stop, then leaned around a corner to peer down another hallway. After a moment, he waved me forward and handed me one of his candles. Third door on the right, 
What you do there is your own affair. I nodded and placed a bag of guineas in his upturned palm. Bell hurried off down the stairs as I advanced to the indicated door and entered the king's private library. Although I encountered no one in the darkened hallway, I knew that the king's party might disperse at any moment, allowing the servants and guards to return to their stations throughout the household. The library was a rectangular room so large that my candle's meagre flame could not illuminate the far end of the chamber. Cabinets burdened with leather-bound tomes ran the length of one wall, while a long window in the opposing wall offered a view of the moonlit waters of the Thames. As I moved about the room, the circle of light from my candle swept over furnishings of polished walnut and mahogany, a brass telescope, a globe of the heavens. Finally, I found the brass stand with its linen-draped cage in a far corner of the chamber. Setting my candle on a nearby table, I lifted the linen veil and opened the cage door. The olverung lay on the floor of the cage with its eyes shut, exhausted by the attentions of Signor Salvary. I gingerly scooped the dormant bird into my hand and slid it into one of my drawstring bags. Somewhat larger than a pigeon, it made for a tight fit. I then replaced the rare fowl with the grey gent I carried. With any luck, the flutter of wings beneath the cage's cover would prevent the theft from being discovered for hours to come. The olverung snug in the bag beneath my surcoat, I hastened back to the banqueting house. The western face of the palace bordered the Thames, and, as I did not have a boat waiting for me at the river, I would have to exit Whitehall on the eastern side, the way I'd come in. No sooner had I rejoined the soiree in the great hall than the officious steward bustled up to me, shaking his finger. "'There you are. Come with me. His Majesty wishes to speak with you.' My heart quickened, and the weight of the bag beneath my coat seemed heavier than before. Resisting the urge to flee, I gave an ingratiating smile. "'It would be an honour. The steward guided me up to the head of the room, where the king stood conversing with the Duke of Albemarle, the Earl of Southampton, and the Lady Barbara Castlemaine. The Queen had evidently retired early that evening. His Majesty grinned as I approached. "'Ah, here is the knave himself. Delightful show, my good fellow.' I bowed. "'Your Highness is too kind.' The King gestured magnanimously with his hand. "'Pray, sirrah, favour us with more of your splendid tricks.' A tremor of apprehension ran through me. Out of the corners of my eyes I could see the guards who stood in vigilance a few yards to either side of us. "'I am a sorcerer,' I objected with mock indignation. "'I would never dare to trick, Your Highness. "'Tricks are for scoundrels. "'Take this fellow here.' "'I stepped up to the Earl of Southampton "'and pretended to pull a sovereign from his ear. "'He has obviously been plundering Your Majesty's treasury.' "'The King, the Earl, and the Duke burst into laughter, "'while Lady Castlemaine tittered demurely "'with one gloved hand held over her mouth. "'My anxiety eased.' As it turned out, my own cleverness proved my undoing. Each trifle I performed only served to whet the king's appetite for more. "'Another! Another!' he urged after each illusion, obliging me to continue my improvisations. Beneath my coat I felt the olverung stir within its drawstring bag. Sweat matted the flower on my forehead as I made the earl's snuff-box vanish from my hand, then produced it from a pocket on the duke's waistcoat. "'I thank you, my lords,' I bowed again as they applauded. "'Sadly, I must now take my leave.' "'Surely not,' the king insisted with boyish petulance. "'One more, please.' 
The drawstring bag throbbed as though it were an egg about to hatch. I bowed once more and disguised my impatience with false modesty. Your Highness taxes my humble skills. Nonsense! Another, please! Your Majesty, a familiar voice interrupted from behind me. Shouldn't we take this opportunity to discuss the Dutch situation? The King sighed. Honestly, Atherton, do you think about nothing but business? I smiled inwardly. His lordship must have deduced my identity and stepped forward to aid my escape. Although Atherton and I avoided looking one another in the eye, I could have kissed his sour old face right then. I leave for Paris on the morrow, your highness, he said sternly. King Louis will want to know our position. Yes, but can it not wait another half of an hour? the king muttered. With all due respect, your majesty, I am an old man with a long journey ahead of me. I must to bed. The king sighed and turned to me. Monsieur Renard, it seems we have some duties to attend to. However, we insist that you return to entertain us again. Of course, your majesty, I lied. At your pleasure. As court etiquette dictated, I genuflected and moved to leave. Cautious not to turn my back on the king until I was a discreet distance away. What a charming clown, I heard Lady Castlemaine purr. Wherever did you find him? The steward, who remained standing in attendance at the king's elbow, cleared his throat. <clears throat> Milady, the magician claims that you employed him this evening. She laughed. Surely another of his jests. I've never seen him before in my life. I did not wait for the steward's reply. Quickening my steps, I returned to the other end of the hall. To avoid arousing further suspicion, I resolved to carry the wicker chest as I made my exit, even though I no longer needed it. Once I had the chest outside, I could secretly replace the remaining grey gentleman with the olverung, thereby removing the twitching bird from my person. In my haste, alas, I lifted the chest with such force that it crushed the hidden drawstring bag against my side. Roused by the pain, the olverung began to sing. Within moments, everyone in the banqueting house, from the king down to the lowliest servant, fell silent in astonishment. Muffled yet unmistakable, the plaintive melody grew louder in the chamber's sudden stillness. For an instant, the company remained perplexed, unable to comprehend what they heard. Then the steward's eyes gaped with the realization He has the overung! Guards! Answering the call, two guards rushed towards me from the door to my right. The bird! Get the bird! the steward shrieked at them. Both soldiers aimed their muskets at me. Very well, I said. You may have the bird. I dropped the wicker chest on the floor, jerking the lid open as I did so. The six remaining grey gentlemen flapped out into the banqueting house. Afraid that the bird he was supposed to retrieve was about to fly away, one of the guards threw down his gun and attempted to snatch the gentlemen as they fluttered around him. The other still pointed his musket at me, but before he could pull the trigger, his bird-chasing comrade stumbled in front of him. I drew a sword from Adolphus's rune-covered box illusion and dashed toward one of the hanging tapestries on my left. Guards from every quarter of the hall converged on me, their progress slowed by the crowd of murmuring aristocrats, all of whom were too stunned or fearful to move. A few of the soldiers stopped and raised the barrels of their guns. The steward raised his hands in protest. Don't shoot, you fools, you might damage the fowl. As the guards hesitated, I thrust aside one corner of the tapestry and climbed onto the deep ledge of the window behind the arras. Just before he disappeared from my view, I thought I saw the king laugh. 
I had given His Majesty one final trick after all. Once hidden behind the tapestry, I turned the window latch and thrust open one of the casements, then leapt out onto the cobblestone pathway that threaded between the banqueting house and the palace's bakery and scalding house. Shouts of alarm rose over the palace grounds as I ran to the tilt yard, where my horse and cart sat waiting at the far end of a long line of coaches and sedan chairs belonging to the king's guests. Lanterns drifted through the darkness as stable boys and coachmen moved among the carriages, tending the horses. Startled by my appearance, they did not stop me as I clambered onto the cart and used Adolphus's sword to slash the harness that tethered the gelding to the wagon. With the Olverung still keening its ethereal elegy, I cast aside the sword, leapt onto the gelding's back, and charged out of the yard at a gallop. Before I'd even reached Charing Cross, I could hear hoofbeats clattering up on me from behind. Casting off my peaked cap, I spurred my horse onto Haymarket, haphazardly turning right and left among nearly deserted streets of darkened shops. When I'd lost my pursuers for the nonce, I reared the gelding to a halt, swung myself off the animal, then swatted its flank to send it on up the avenue. As the riderless horse galloped away, I hastily turned my surcoat wrong side out, exchanging the motley colours for a black that matched the night around me. Striding toward the darkness of an adjacent alley, I opened the top of the drawstring bag just enough to allow the Olverung to stick its misshapen head into the chill evening air. At any other time I would have sold my soul to hear the melody that continued to pour from its throat. At that moment, however, I only wanted the bird to shut its wart-spotted beak. Hush, hush, I whispered, and stroked its bristling feathers as tenderly as I could. I won't let them have you. The melody dwindled to a wistful whistling. As the Elverung calmed beneath my touch, it began to coo quietly. Wiping the remaining flower off my face with my sleeve, I cradled the bird close to my chest as I crouched in the cover of the alley's shadows. Not more than a minute later, I saw two of the King's guards ride past on horseback, vainly hunting a fugitive harlequin. I rode home the following morning on a mare I purchased from the tavern-keeper at the King's house in Drury Lane. He charged me twice what the animal was worth, but I paid him without complaint. Lord Atherton had delayed his departure for Paris to speak with me, and I did not want to keep him waiting. As appointed, we met that night in the cemetery of our first encounter. His single candle flickered amongst the headstones like a forgotten wish. "'You have it, do you not?' He trembled with desire as he gaped at my silken hood. "'I brought the rest of your gold.' "'No doubt you have,' I lifted a sack of five hundred sovereigns from beneath my cloak and threw it at his feet. The old man looked at the bag and shook his head. "'What's this?' "'Your original commission. You shall not have the bird.' Rage and fear rippled through the flesh of his face. "'If this is a charade to increase your bounty—' "'No, it is not,' I walked away. Two thousand, three. When I failed to turn around, he hobbled after me. "'We had an agreement!' His shouts became sobs as I neared the churchyard wall. "'You don't understand. My late wife, she speaks to me through the bird's song.' I climbed onto Obsidian's saddle. "'I'll find you!' Atherton screamed at my back as I rode away. "'Do you hear me? I'll see your neck stretched before the fortnight is out.' In truth, I pitied him. But no amount of gold would make me part with the Olverung. When I returned to my modest country house that night— I stripped off my mask and stalked through the richly furnished but vacant rooms of my home until I reached my vault of treasures. 
the small study where I hoard the finest prizes of my career. I ran my fingers over each of the trophies. Here sat the Eye of Aurum, an emerald the size of an apple that I took from a heretical cult in Barchester. There hung the ceremonial sword of the family Anwick, which I pulled from the bleeding body of the Earl himself, and here rested the gilded skull of the Vicomte de Vernier, his hollow eyes filled with fire opals, his teeth replaced by shards of violet amethyst. I pored over these and dozens of other mementos, the spoils of a life spent pillaging the fortunes of the rich and wicked. None of them stirred even the slightest sentiment in me. Whatever thrill I experienced in stealing them had dissipated as surely as the intoxication of a fine brandy, and now they were nothing more to me than the dusty relics of empty victories. I moved on to the bronze cage in the far corner of the room, in which the olverung sat placidly preening its feathers. How much it must have suffered through the centuries! I mused in awe as I opened the cage door and cupped my hands around the quivering bird. The olverung fluttered in my arms and nestled against my chest as I gently stroked its back. It seemed to take comfort in the touch of the man who had liberated it from Whitehall. My fingers trembled at the memory of its agony, and I twisted its wing until it sang a song of such overwhelming beauty that the frozen sea within me cracked and melted. I know that of all my sins, this is the one that will surely damn me. Sometimes I resist the temptation. Inevitably, though, the grey parade of insipid days leads me back to the solace of the bird's music. I possess neither the tools nor the talent of Signor Salvary, but what I lack in training I make up in invention, the novelty of my torments. I sit here alone, the olverung in my lap, and compose a breathtaking serenade of suffering, a private melody of misery made all the more heartbreaking for the fact that the only one who hears it is the one who will never let it end. I play, and the olverung sings, and I weep, and weep, and weep. Feedback for Podcastle number 60, The Evolution of Trickster Stories Among the Dogs of North Park After the Change, by Kish Johnson, which had a lot of people thinking about the relationship they have with their dogs. There was some very thought-provoking discussion about the plights of the dogs and how they parallel slavery. Talia said, I like this, though I had a few quibbles about it. It went on quite a bit about the master-slave thing, but I don't feel like that's how most people treat the relationship with their pets. Some bad people, sure, but most people treat them like a family member, albeit a child for discipline and such. I suspect a lot of people would get rid of their dogs if they could suddenly talk, not out of guilt, but out of the sheer weirdness, though perhaps not as many as implied in this story. I enjoyed the story's parts of it. That was one of the best parts, and yay for mostly happy endings. Trouble said the parallel to human slaves felt pretty gross and racially insensitive, to say the least. Making animals a substitute for categories of humans is tricky at the best of times, but the discussion of Martha Washington freeing her slaves and how she felt versus how dog owners felt? Well, I get the feeling that we the listeners are assumed to identify with the dog owners, but if you have a different relationship to slavery, I think you might possibly be thinking more about how the other side was feeling. Nathaniel Lee said, I thought this was fabulous. 
I especially loved watching the actual evolution of the trickster stories as the dogs gathered and honed their skills, the stories growing more complex and reflecting the changing attitudes of the dogs to the way they were treated by the humans. I found the idea that dogs would be abandoned in this manner to be distressingly plausible, though I did appreciate that at least some people were able to adjust to the concept and accept the dogs and their alien worldviews. I particularly liked the offhand references to cats being pragmatic sociopaths. Personally, I know exactly what I'd hear if our cats started talking. All in all, a very intriguing and subtle insight into non-human points of view. That's all the feedback we have for this week, folks. Bound on by our message boards at forum.escapeartist.net and join in on the conversation for a howl of a good time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Joel Cairo said, Might I remind you, Mr. Spade, that you may have the Falcon, but we certainly have you. you.